Hi there. This is Jaime Alejandro with the Arts Calling Podcast, the podcast where I interview hardworking independent creatives in the literary, visual, and performing arts. As I mentioned before, there won't be any shoutouts this holiday season, but please stay tuned for more of those coming in 2024. So let's get things rolling. Today, I am thrilled to be Arts Calling writer and educator Kate Brandt. Here's a little bit about our guest. Kate Brandt is a graduate of the MFA writing program at Sarah Lawrence College. Her work has appeared in literary anthologies, Tricycle, The Buddhist Review, Literary Mama, Genosco, and Redivider, among other publications. Hope for the Worst, her first novel, is informed by her experiences with Tibetan Buddhism, magic, self-delusion, desire, despair, and healing, as well as her travels through Europe, Africa, and Asia. Kate is also a teacher and teacher-trainer in adult literacy in New York City. In this role, she is privileged to work with a community of smart, dedicated educators in service to adult students who, despite difficult circumstances, continue to pursue an education in the hope of improving their lives. This was a very moving, very personal conversation that we shared, Kate and I, and I hope that you enjoy. So without further delay, let's give her a call. Good morning. Is anybody there? I'm here. Good morning. How are you? Okay. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm well. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm I'm thrilled to get a chance to chat this morning. I know we woke up a little bit early, but you're over on the East Coast, right? So it's not too bad for you. That's right. Yes. <laughs> so, uh how's how's things where you are? Um, it's a little gray and cold here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I actually, I prefer my weather cold. I, I think this is my favorite season, especially uh, the spooky season. But we're here to talk about your latest work, uh, Hope for the Worst, which is uh, a really wonderful read. I had the pleasure of, of starting and I just realized that the um, I got to the part when the journey was about to begin. So oh, okay. I, I got a lot of the character development in, in the beginning that was so engaging and so so exciting uh-huh. for me to to check out that I wanted to see if you could maybe give us an introduction on the book and, and we could sure. start there. Cause I feel it's such a okay. powerful way to, to begin, especially with a work like yours. Okay. Thank you so much. So, um, hope for the worst is the story of a 20 something young woman living in New York city in the 1980s. And um, she is just out of college and kind of very disaffected by what she finds. You know, she's been sort of studying all these lofty things in college. And now the question is, how fast can you type? And uh, she's also kind of depressed. She has some family problems. And so she's, you know, she's looking for something. She's looking for something better. And... um, she runs into a Buddhist teacher who seems to have all of the answers that she's been looking for. And um, so she starts going to his lectures and he ends up seducing her and um, she falls in love with him and becomes more and more focused on him. And um, when he cuts her off, it creates a huge crisis for her. 
Mm-hmm. And um, this story is about how she deals with that crisis, how she comes out of that, what she learns from it. Um, and uh, there are a number of questions I am posing in the in the book. Um, it is a very it is made up of journal entries and letters. And the reason that I chose those forms, is because this book is really not so much an action-packed book as it's a book about a person's mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to bring in ideas from Buddhism. And um, so the book is really, the journal entries really follow her thoughts and feelings in a kind of a granular way. So it's really... You know, Buddhism really is about dealing with your own mind. Um, And so in that sense, it is uh, really bringing in uh, Buddhist concepts. There are other ways that it is also bringing in Buddhist concepts. Um, And so go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just going to, sorry for interjecting. I was just going to mention that I, I hadn't realized that, but the reason I enjoyed the beginning was because you say that it wasn't action packed, but when you're in somebody's mind, it is nonstop. And it has this, this right. energy that is just continuously going. And there's another concern or another right. worry or why am I like this? And though I, I wanted to ask you about the structure of it, you know, with the, with the journal entries and the notebooks in particular, which was really right. interesting. But can can you tell me a little about how this character is is an autobiographical avatar, if you will, or or just like um, can you share a little bit more about that? Because this is an autobiography of sorts, but it kind of isn't. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, it is very autobiographical in the sense that it is based on my own experience that took place in my twenties in the nineteen eighties in New York City, and. Um, it is, um, there are two reasons why it's a novel instead of an autobiography, instead of a memoir. Mm. One reason is that uh, my, it was to protect my family. My family has been through a lot. Um, there's been a lot of uh, estrangement, a lot of anger. And so I wanted to um, protect my family that way. And the other reason is that, um, you know, with memoir, you have to, you can't, um, you have to stick closer to the facts and um, it, it, it uh, narrows what you can do with the story. So I took things that really happened and I re- rearranged them in terms of time uh, because, so that I could have a story arc that was more... Uh, kind of classical in a way. Um, so, uh, yeah, it gave me more freedom. Yeah. So when do you make this decision to go with a, with a more semi-autobiographical approach? Because I, I imagine that you wrestled with this. I imagine that it took some time for you to figure out, am I going to be able to turn this into a memoir? Or was that your original thinking? Like, what made you decide that? And how long ago was that in the process? So, um, writing this novel was a very long process. It started, I have an absolutely wonderful writing group. And one of the things that we would do is we would do a free write every time we met. And there would be a lot of groaning. I don't want to do it. 
And then um, it always ended up, you know, uh, producing some magic. Uh, so the, it started as a free write. It was a free write about a journey. And um, I actually was writing about this journey that I used to take with this man from the west side of Spring Street to the east side of Spring Street. And um, it was a very long journey because it was the time between when I met him and when we would sort of start our our tryst. And um, when I wrote about it, everyone in the group said, you have to you have to write about this. Um, and one of the my father is a writer. And one of the things that he said to me once about art that I never forgot is he said, art has to have strangeness. And uh, so this was an extremely strange experience. And um, so I felt that I could have more impact with fiction because I could, I could have that freedom to sort of do what I wanted with it um, because there were certain things I wanted to talk about and that was more important to me than, um, you know, really, you know, being so true to what happened, you know, and, and also to be honest, I wanted to protect his family. Um, this, this man, because, you know, it's not, not their fault. They didn't, you know, they weren't involved. So, um, so, and I, I didn't feel like it needed to be memoir. I felt like, um, I could tell the same story with fiction and actually be a little bit more effective. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really curious what that takes. You know, I think it, it does take a lot of cooperation on behalf of all parties involved to be upfront about the memoir aspect of it and say, this right. is coming yeah. out and it's not just my story at this point. This is going to involve every single person that has sort of like rooted into my own journey. And so I, I can imagine that that's a really huge emotional effort to to try to like coordinate all of these perspectives and, and everyone yes. sort of be like, yes, are we cool with this? Is this going to be an yeah. acceptable? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to be honest with you, my father still doesn't know I've written a book. Mm. Um so, you know, even making it a novel didn't, I have a very delicate relationship with him. Mm, um, and because it's small press, I knew that he would never, he would never come across this book. Oh, so. goodness. Yeah. And, and I imagine that is a, a tough situation to be in, uh, especially given that he's a writer himself. Uh, there, there has to be some things that obviously uh, we can get to that later if you're comfortable with it. But in terms of the, the book and, and sort of finding that structure, Tell me a little bit more about the notebooks. How do you arrive at that that device to build something that is so engaging? Because from the moment I started reading it, I said this is this is really frenetic to me uh, because mm. of that that not only the, as I said the pace of of being in somebody else's head, but the delivery. So tell me a bit about how you find that. Um, I guess right. I guess it's like an epistolary esque sort of thing. Yes. I, I don't know yeah. if that's what that is. Yeah. 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 So, um, so it is kind of an interesting story because it was long and torturous, to be honest. I <laughs> always knew I wanted to write a novel of letters. And in the beginning, I this was a very different story. There were two archaeologists who were writing back and forth to each other. Uh, one of them was in Tibet. Um, I was setting the story in to begin with. 
And um, it took me many, many, many transformations to get to where I got to. And the way that that happened was by bringing various versions to my writing group. And they, mm. you know, they're very good friends, so they would read it. And, um, you know, they refused to tell me that it was right until it was right. And that, you know, that's true friendship because I would have wanted to put someone out of their misery. Um, but I think that what it started out was I felt like, oh, I have to have a story that has a big bet. Nobody's going to want to read it. It has to be, you know, it's a start into bed. It has to start with something really exciting happening. And um, what I finally came to was realizing that I could value what you were talking about, being in somebody's mind, and that that was my strength doing that, and that that was what the story was about. Telling the story of the love affair, that was always there, and I always knew that was the heart of the book. So it was about framing it. That's where I struggled so very much was framing it. Yeah. And I think you had to establish, and I think that's what's so effective about the piece. And maybe it's because that is the area that I I focused on the first, you know, 7,500 pages or so Mm -hmm. that are so emotional and you feel for this person as she's going through this process of feeling like an alien, like somebody who just doesn't have a place. And it does emphasize the perspective of depression, it does emphasize that kind of anxiety that you would have from just feeling like nobody really recognize you for, recognizes you for what you are, truly. And I, I imagine, if I may ask, was there a point where you had to step away emotionally? Because obviously there are some elements of yourself here that I, I feel are, are pretty heartbreaking to perhaps relive if there is some truth to the beginning of, of that time period. Um, was there a moment where you had to step back from that? So, you know, that's such a good question to ask. I mean, this was really the biggest cataclysm of my life, this whole situation. And um, so I spent a lot of time processing this and it was really time, you know, it was really time that allowed me to and it was actually helpful and cathartic to write this it was you know i had processed it so much already and um at this point i was just very interested in um calling up those emotions so that i could you know the thing about writing is that why do people write my first writer writing teacher said people write because they weren't invited to the party, you know, (laughs) and, um, you know, it's this loneliness and, uh, you know, you can, one way to, to sort of bridge that loneliness is if you can evoke, this is how it was for me. And in a way that other people will read it and experience it, you are less lonely. And so, um, I don't know if that answers your question, but, um, you know, that's it wasn't actually that hard for me to do it, to write it. Yeah, certainly um, does. And I appreciate that because I'm pretty much obsessed with this idea of getting things out of your system. And I uh, personally yes. feel that there are some things in my life that I 
felt like I was obsessing over or that I, that were just annihilating me emotionally. And there, there was a decade of my life that was very much about the, the qualms and issues that I had with faith, the issues that I had with, with certain family dynamics and, and very specific things to me. But as I've mentioned in the podcast before, it's this act of relieving that weight off of your shoulders, whether you do it, you know, through a therapist or creatively or or however you do it. Then you look at the world with new eyes, it seems. And even your past, you start to look with with a whole new framework. Oh, um, true. And yes. It feels like you that was way past, you know, and, and you yeah. felt like you had atoned for that emotional burden a long, long time ago. So with that newfound clarity, then you just dug right in. And I imagine you just looked at the mechanics of the thing. And here's this piece. Here's another piece. How did yes. you assemble it then? How did you find yeah. the right arc as you as you were saying yeah i think that one of the biggest struggles was realizing that the journey would come at the end and that it would be this sort of climactic part of the book for the longest time i felt like oh i have to grab people right away you know at one point this story started with uh this character being involved there were actually i was in tibet in um, 1986-87, and um, there were some protests that broke out then in Lhasa, and um, it started with her, there were some Westerners who were involved, and it started with her, you know, being involved with that, and um, Mm -hmm. so it took me a long time to trust that I could write a story that was about emotion and ideas, and that it would you know, be something that other people would want to read. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious one of the, the great concerns, I guess I should say in, in the, in the work is Buddhism, the faith. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm curious if you could elaborate a little bit on what your sort of relationship to faith is and, and how that started yeah. when you were younger, because you said something really interesting and on another podcast, I'm, I'm hoping that maybe you can tap into once again is, is this idea of your parents, having different ideas about faith, uh, which I, which I thought might be something worth sharing, but how, how you've arrived at, at Buddhism of all things. Right. Yeah. So I'm really, really glad you asked that. I think I've done a lot of thinking about this. I mean, um, as I said, at that time, I was really looking for answers because, um, you know, my, I grew up, you know, there was a little bit of church going, but it was not uh, by any means the center of our lives. It was like something you did because that was what we did. That was the right thing to do. And my father, my mother would march us off to church. My father would stand there and say, God is dead, right? So (laughs) Christianity wasn't really, you know, a presence in our house, but um, you know, I grew up during the 60s, and that was when some of the ideas about Eastern religion were starting to become more, you know, prevalent. Um, and um, my father was into that. He brought some of that home. And I think that um, I was really looking for something when I was in my 20s. And that is, in a certain sense, what I stumbled into. And the first thing that really pulled me about it is, you know, the first noble truth is life is suffering. And, um, you know, I was looking at the world feeling like, you know, I was 
bursting into this, you know, giant cloud of capitalism. You know, I was, you know, everything seemed really fake. Everything was for sale. Uh, you know, where's the heart, you know? Um, and so Buddhism really is a very good antidote to that, as are many faiths, you know? Um, I mean, we have a society that's a little crazy with capitalism. And if you don't grow up with faith, you know, you're lucky if you run into something that works for you. I think, you know, right. yeah, you touch on something that is so dear to me, this idea that because I'm a, I'm a parent, you know, and I, I have such a complicated relationship with my own faith and I go back and forth and, and I have spurts of, of spirituality and then and then there's a, an extreme aspect right. of certain things. But just this notion of, of finding a, a foundation, a spiritual foundation and I, I'd like to ask if Buddhism is still a part of your life or if this was a season of your life uh, where Buddhism in your early 20s or, or your mid-20s was sort of the the focal point of kind of where you were at. Yeah, so um, Buddhism is still my belief system. Uh, I don't, you know, I do meditate. I'm not this really regular meditator you know, I will go to it like other people go to, you know, other people go to church when they're, when things aren't going well, to be honest, I will do the same. It's, it's does feel like a, some, a faith that I have enough understanding of what it's about, that it feels like a very real, you know, we say, when someone um, sort of officially becomes Buddhist, they say, I take refuge. I take refuge mm -hmm. in the Dharma. I take refuge in the, in the Sangha. And that is really how it feels, you know, is that you are, um, you know, part of what I was talking about in this book is the way that um, you can one of the things that the the teacher kept talking about was the trickster and he says the trickster is going to show you who you really are and uh who you really are may not be the exalted idea of what you wanted to be who you really are may be much more humbling and when you are in that place you can take you want you need a refuge and, um, you know, we all have been been brought to our knees by something, right? And um, that is where you can go when there's nothing else, I feel. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a absolutely powerful. It's it's getting like the the cold bucket of water over you and yes, <laughs> it exactly. surprises you. Yeah. And, you know, that was really what the actual experience was like for me. You know, I was really, you know, I was being gaslit a bit and and being told, you know, you're, you're going to, you know, you're going to reach this enlightened state. And when I finally realized that I wasn't going, when that, that, that that wasn't going to happen, I had to really sit down and reassess, you know, that I am actually, you know, I am a person who has all these needs and I've been trying to get my needs met in this place where they're not going to get met. And I had to sort of, yeah, it was a very humbling experience. Hmm. So if we could talk for a minute about what you mentioned earlier about 
hope for the worst, which is you called it a Me Too book in a Buddhist setting. And I'd like to ask you a bit more about that in terms of what is it that you think is timely about the work in regards to Me Too? And what are the things that that you walked away with in terms of your, your learning experiences about yeah. that situation from a Me Too perspective? You know, timely is a funny word because in publishing there's these trends and they go by really fast. Um, and so... Let me correct you know, that. Uh, sorry, I should have said ever timely. So... Uh, ever timely. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. Okay. Very yeah. Kind of um, so... Um, yeah, I think that, you know, it's funny for me as a person who, a young woman in the 80s, when it was really still, you know, a lot of things were still okay to do. It was okay for teachers to seduce their students. It was, you know, and that turned around, and I'm glad it turned around because I think that, um, that there is a, a kind of predatory aspect to, you know, older men sort of seducing younger women. And, um, you know, I'm glad that I feel like Me Too is sort of telling a truth about that, that that's really not okay. Um, in terms of what I learned from the experience, I think, um, the well, one of the big things I that I came out with is that it's going to be other women who will rescue you. That was my experience. Um, those, that's been the sort of saving, you know, the hand that was held out to help me when I was really in some of my worst times is female friendship really, uh, really rescued me. Um, but also that in terms of, um, kind of psychology and spirituality. Um, what I really learned from that is, you know, you have to value yourself. And um, one reason why it was so confusing when it came to Buddhism is that Buddhism is, there's uh, one of the sort of key precepts of Buddhism is this idea of no self. You know, that the self is an illusion uh, that comes from, you know, we have all these different sensations and aspects and we create this illusion of a self out of it. So while I was going through this relationship and um, asking myself, why is this person treating me so badly? Uh, you know, there was also this idea of no self. Well, if there's no self, why am I being so selfish? Why am I thinking about, you know, myself so much? I should be transcending this. And I think a learning that came out of that is that you have to value yourself. You have to respect yourself always. Um, that that's not really what no self means. It's not really about self-denial, self-abnegation. No self is more about identifying yourself with a bigger picture. It's no self is really more about... Um, not over identifying with your own thoughts, being, you know, connected to a bigger, a bigger picture. And part of that is just accepting mystery, you know, that there's parts of ourselves that we 
don't know or can't define, but that's, you know, that's a good thing. That's incredibly inspiring. And that is the world, the, the spiritual world that I want to navigate is, is being okay with not knowing, but yes, but accepting love for yourself in the process, even though you'll never be able to fully understand that picture. Yeah. Just, yeah. I want to say one more thing about that is that one of the things that sort of gave me a, made a light bulb go off in my head about that was um, reading Simone Weil. I don't know if you have heard of her. She wrote, she was a, um, a German Jew who uh, converted to Catholicism. And um, she wrote a book called Gravity and Grace. And one of the things that she says is um, love your neighbor as yourself, love yourself as your neighbor. And it kind of made me realize that, you know, you know, you should give yourself at least as much love as you would give to your neighbor, you know? Yeah. Um, wow. So. I'm going to have to check that out. That sounds, that sounds amazing. Um, I got a couple more questions to be mindful of your time here, but if we could pivot for just a moment uh, into the mechanics of writing the, in the publishing process, because I believe that, yeah. that you've had an, an interesting situation here with that um can you tell me how long it took you to work on this like when you actually started the mission of having a manuscript how long Mm -hmm. did it take you to to actually unspool this thing and put it back together with the help of the writers group 10 years it was a very long yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i work just to be fair to myself but uh you know it was uh it was a very long process one of the things that's very interesting about that is that you can get an idea about so what happened was one of my friends said to me you know you've written a book about traveling you've you know that that didn't get published and you've written about love and that didn't get published so you really should really put those two ideas together right and so then i had this idea and i felt like the book had to be more about travel it had to be exciting. It would be about, you know, being in different places. And, you know, there's, you know, talk about a fixed idea. I just had this mm-hmm. fixed idea and it just took me the longest time to accept that that was not the right way to do it. And I think, um, you know, uh, that's where you have to have those other eyes and you have to have eyes that you trust. You have to have eyes you know, we are our, we have a very close writing group. I know that all of those women really love me. And so I know that I can trust what they say. You know, there's no meanness. There's no pettiness. Uh, they want me to do the best work I can do. Um, and they really believed in me more than I believed in myself, you know. So that was very important. Yeah. What, um, a, what a gift that is to, to have a, a supportive group of folks who are able to to kind of get you to that next step. But if we could dabble just a little bit more on, on some of the, the problem issues that, or, or the problems that you had with the manuscript, because I, I like to refer to these things as like a dark moment, right? Where you just, oh, sure. you, nothing is working or there's a huge obstacle in the way. Do you remember a moment like that, whether it was something brought to you by the group or, or something else, kind of like the, um, the, the rigid, thing that you that you had set for right. it but 
Right. What was something that you felt was almost not worth pursuing anymore or that, that you felt was like destroying the project that you kind of okay. overcame? I'll tell you a, a funny story about that. Of course. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so first of all, when I look back at the titles of my different documents in, in, my, uh, in my word, there are things like try, try again, if at first you don't succeed, uh, just kill me. You know, it's, <laughs> it gets worse and worse and worse um, because you do start to doubt whether you can pull this project off, you know. And I do remember <laughs> there was this moment where my cat managed to get out and break its leg. Oh, and, no. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I was taking care of this cat. My my ex-husband had left. I was on my own with my child and this cat. And um, the cat could not jump. So it was me and the Aww. cat in this little tiny room where there was no place to jump. And we were hanging out of this room. And I was in complete despair about the book. And my friend Jimin called me and she said, like, okay, what what is it really about? What's her problem? You know, so that was one of those dark moments where you, you know, every time you start again, you're going back to the drawing board. Anything can happen. That's what's so difficult. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. what was made it a little easier for me was knowing what worked. So another of my good friends from the writing group had told me, you know, this part really works. So I knew what works. So that gives you a ray of hope that you have something that is there the core of it and that was the story about the affair and that is why i always tend to write from my own experience because um that's where the oomph comes from for right. me some you know some people are really good at making things up i'm not so good at making things up <laughs> that's where i really struggle is story right i am very good at putting words together but story is difficult yeah, and um, I, I I have to compliment you here on on what I've read of the book, which is which is exactly what you're saying, and what a beautiful thing it is to know what your strengths are and what things maybe you don't want to you don't need to spend time on, or or maybe look at look at other ways to um to bring the story to life. Um, but in regard to your your job, because you have you have a job that that can be described as, I guess, mentally taxing, uh, being an educator, you're an adult literacy teacher, correct? Yes. So can you talk to me a little bit about that and how you are able to manage the mental strain of being an educator? Because no matter who you're teaching, that is, that is a lot to, to process and then come home to write and, and, you know, balance life uh, as it were, because, uh, you're a parent as well. You, you mentioned um, yeah, I mean, now I'm an empty nester. A lot easier, so, I take it. It's <laughs> been really yeah. tough. Um, mm. So I would say that um, writing, uh, I, you know, I was pretty disciplined about writing. I would write in the morning and I don't write, I don't work five days a week. I work four days a week. So I would have three mornings every week when I would work. Um, and to be honest, the pandemic working at home, I really was able to finish the book that way. Um, 
the job, um, first of all, I, you know, my job is I teach, but it's, a, there's a lot of admin. So it's a lot easier than really having to be constantly in the classroom, you know, giving and delivering. Um, so right now, I would say that the teaching is feeding me so much because um, my students have been through incredibly traumatic things. And, um, you know, one of the things that's difficult about teaching adult literacy is that sorry, we're different social classes. You know, my, I, I was always good at school. You know, I never had to worry about the lights being turned off in my house. You know, I had certain privileges from being middle class. And if you have a different background from your students, it can be sometimes hard to bridge, but actually being able to relate to them on an emotional level, um, it, it really feeds me and it helps me build trust with them and use literacy as a way to, um, you know, you, you can write about things that have happened to you, you can write about your emotions, and we can all meet in that place, you know. And um, so that's really been uh, good for me because I became very isolated during the pandemic. You know, I got divorced, mm -hmm. my son left for college. And so mm -hmm. actually having that deep connection with my students has been very, very fulfilling for me. Um, so I'm feel lucky to, to have it actually. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful to hear. And it is, it is so important because I feel like adult literacy in, in particular is, is, I don't want to say that it's it's this huge problem in our country, but for folks who who want to continue to improve themselves, this, I think you're doing a phenomenal service to your community and to your folks over over on your side of the world because we all need to be encouraged that it's okay to learn no matter what age we are, and to see these folks who legitimately have that need, that drive to to improve and get better, has got to be like uh, I don't know, I don't want to say a drug it that that might be offensive, but you know, it's, it's exhilarating. It's very inspiring. It really is. I mean, my students just have so much that they're dealing with, you know, and they're, yeah, I'm really, you know, I'm, I really admire them. Yeah. So if we could talk about uh, making your way to publication, can you tell me a bit about what that experience was like for you? When did you start shopping this, the manuscript around and, and how did that go for you? So um, I'm very lucky to be in a writer's group where some of the um, other folks have been published. So I had like a little roadmap. I had information about how to go about it. And I started by looking for an agent. And, um, you know, that's a very demoralizing experience. Um, you, you know, when you you know there's a lot of time it's very labor and time intensive you have to read about what they're looking for you have to craft a query to them you have you know all of these things um so i i did that for a while i i queried you know quite a few agents and um then i just i decided i had a friend who had had her she had gone through a similar experience and then finally she uh her book was accepted by a small press 
And um, I decided to to submit to a lot of small presses because there's no go between. You know, the, with an agent, it's like first you have to find an agent, then the agent has to find someone for your book. And I just didn't, you know, I, that was a lot to go through. And um, so it was during the pandemic and a lot of the small presses were closed down. They were not accepting. Um, but, you know, it didn't actually take that long to get accepted by Vine Leaves. And um, I've been really happy with the experience. The person who was my editor, Melanie Faith, really understood what I was trying to do. And that, you know, means a lot. Gave great critique. Um, the only thing I would say is that, um, you know, I have a lot to compare with because there are folks in my group who have, gotten a very big splash. There are folks who've been in the middle. And uh, it. I think the hard thing about a small press is that it's print on demand. So bookstores don't want to carry it because you can't return it. Mm. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, and I'm not a person, if you want to publish with a small press, you have to be, you either have to hire a publicist. That's what my friend did. I thought, oh, I'll do that too. And then I found out how much that was going to cost. And I said, I was doing that, you know. Um, so you either have to have the money to do that or you have to be just, that's all you're doing for like six months. And I'm just not, I'm just not a self-promoting person all that much. That's just not who I am and not what I want to do with my life. Yeah, and that's totally understandable. And I think I'm of the same ilk as you when it comes to that because I'm there's only so much time and, and there are yeah. other other things in life. But I imagine that there is a tremendous sense of accomplishment and a weight lifted off your shoulders knowing that the work exists and that yeah. it is well written and and from what I've seen on Goodreads, very well received from the people who have read it and have acknowledged yeah. it. So it's really wonderful to see and I do want to congratulate you on that because to do that, to get to where you have gotten with this work, um, that's to be celebrated. So, um, I got, I got one more, I got one more to be mindful of your time here, but I'm curious, uh, what's on the horizon for you and, uh, and what are you looking to work on this, this coming year? Uh, what yeah. are you looking to improve on and, and what is, uh, what is sort of like turning in your mind and, and inspiring right. you? Yeah. Right. So to be honest with you, um, it's been it's been a little bit uh, demoralizing, right, to with a small press, you know, unless you really work hard, you're not going to reach that many people. Um, and this book was sort of like, this is what I have to say. This is what I have to give. So I'm doing less writing and more um, kind of processing my life right now and um, where I'm at in life. I'm at this whole new stage where I'm, um, I'm pretty isolated. You know, uh, the, I work because of the pandemic, I'm still working at home a lot and, uh, you know, I'm divorced and my son went off to college. So I'm kind of trying to remake my life for this new situation um i am reading a lot which is really wonderful 
Um, and the place that I always go uh, when I don't know what to write is fairy tales. So um, right now I'm working on uh, some very short memoir pieces and um, a fairy tale. Uh, I discovered Kelly Link, the writer Kelly Link, and I really love her. And um, so that has kind of inspired me. Um, so, yeah, I'm, um, you know, I don't have to make my career as a writer. And so that takes a lot of pressure off. Um, and, um, you know, I really, I, I think it's important to be mindful that, you know, we only have one life and we should do what we really, what really calls to us, you know. Um, so you're right. It has been really a good feeling to have this book out of the world to tell my story. Um, and now I'm just, uh, you know, I don't want to write just to write. I want to write when I need to write when it comes to me. So. Yeah. I can't imagine a better note to end on, but I also can't imagine a better sentiment to, to how I feel we should live our lives because yeah. as creative people, and I'm guilty of this myself, we, we have so much emotional baggage about being successful as creatives and what is successful what does that even mean that's a whole conversation in of in and of itself but i just really can't thank you enough for your time kate um this has been incredibly inspiring to me and i want to applaud you once again for you know these insights that you've shared for the work that you've written which is incredibly engaging and i urge everyone to go and check it out and i'm going to put stuff in the episode description so that um folks can take a look at it but this has really been a blast, so I, I can't thank you enough. I mean, this is the most empathetic, <laughs> insightful interview I have ever had. Oh, goodness. I thank you so much for doing that. It's yeah. just, you're putting it out into the world, and I really thank you for that. Well, that your time is much appreciated. Thank you so much for, for the kind words. And please worst. stay in touch. Let me know, uh, you know when the next one comes along, and, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll probably talk down the road. How about that? Yeah, good. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, you take care and I'll be in touch real soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.